This is Jim Wills, and you are listening to the Crave Magazine Podcast, where we feed your soul with art. Live in your truth. The universe will take care of the rest. Art is the expression of human creativity. Your life can be enriched by the most beautiful things that are around you. You just have to understand what you're looking at. Gamelan's a community thing, and that's actually the most important thing about Gamelan. Art in early times, it's one of the first things found in every single culture of the world. All right, I'm here today with Ben Mackinnon. He is a photographer, a videographer, and a musician. Sort of a kindred spirit of sorts, since I also grew up in those realms. And I'm really excited to talk to him. We had an experience we shared together, so we'll get into that. But we're going to talk about your photography. We're going to talk about your musicianship. Um, ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Wills for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off uh, with an inspiration. I like to hear thoughts about what inspires people. So that can be, it can be a quote that you carry with you. It can be a book, favorite book that you read, or a movie, or a musician, or an artist. Wow. Something that inspires you that you kind of carry with you. Oh, it caught me off guard there. Well, my father. Okay. I'll just start with that. He, yeah. uh, I mean, he got me going with, uh, he had a great record collection. He was a hobby photographer. He loved to take us kids around to, ex to explore and discover different foods. Okay. He was a political scientist. He had books, ideas, dreams, philosophies. I mean, he just really got us engaged it, with life. In as many aspects as possible. Yeah, yeah. You say was. It sounds like he's passed. Now. Yeah, he passed away two days, uh, two years ago. Two, day, two years ago. Okay. <laughs> Where did you start first? Did you start photography first or, or music first? Music first. My mom tells me that when I was two, I was watching. Um, I think it was Sesame Street. It was either that or the Electric Company. <laughs> okay. I think it was Sesame Street. My mom says, and Babatunde Olatunji, a Nigerian drummer, came on the show, and he was standing up at his tall. African drum, and when I saw him, I just flipped over my Lincoln Logs <laughs> toy box and started imitating him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was game over. Lincoln Logs came in that like tub, tubular. Yeah, like yeah, a, like a canister kind of tub. I remember that with the exactly. metal bottom. Exactly. Yeah. Oh wow! So that was your first drumming at the age of two. My mom says that was the first time. Now, I personally think my theory is that we're all natural drummers. I mean, from the from the minute we have our first consciousness. We're in, in our mother's wombs. I mean, unless you're a test tube baby, I, that's a new thing. I can't sure. really speak to that. But up until a few years ago, we, were all, we all came from a mother's womb. Right. And the first thing we must have been aware of, even pre-conscious, is the heartbeat. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think we're all rhythmically attuned. We, we, we manifest it in different ways. but Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't thought of that before, uh, the heartbeat. like. I mean, for nine months, you're hearing a do doom do doom do doom do doom And it's not just do doom do doom It's huge. It's your whole yeah, world. Yeah. do doom do doom do doom Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and the vibrations and the fluids are all hitting you in time and rhythm with that, whatever your mom's going through. You right. know? All of, her, uh, all of her emotions and physical experiences are going into you. Well, let's get into your life a little bit. Why don't you tell, tell us, like... How you came up as a drum? No, you work professionally as a musician, right? And you also work professionally as a photographer slash videographer, right? Why don't you just give us a little history of like how you came about those two artistic disciplines, like how you sort of developed into 
an artist and a musician. Sure. Okay. Uh, the drumming happened first, obviously, like I said, it too. Age two. <laughs> you went, went through the school system, started to learn to read and uh, read music in junior high school. Well, by the time I was in um, high school, I started to get hired to play other schools' musicals. Uh, they either needed a drummer or their That's drummer couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time I was probably a, probably by the time I was a junior in high school. I was getting um, farmed out <laughs> okay. to some of the other high schools, and that's when I and and they paid me, so I got a taste of professional work pretty young, and I sure, liked it. Sure, I I continued with drumming into college, and at a certain point, uh, one day I got a call from a buddy of mine, who said, "Ben, you got to come." Well, first of all, I, I got a scholarship to the University of Miami. Okay, I went there to study drums, actually to, to study percussion. Did you grow up in Florida? No. I, I grew up all over the country, Jim. <laughs> I was born in Maine. We moved to California. My parents got divorced. I, I was raised in central Washington State with my mother during the school year. Okay. And I'd visit my father in San Francisco during the summers. Right, okay. Then my father moved to Oklahoma. That's when I moved in with him in Tulsa for a year. And then we moved up to Denver. So by the time I was a sophomore in high school, we were here. You were in Denver. In, in actually in Aurora. Okay. Right, Overland High School in Aurora. So I go to University of Miami for a year as a percussion major. I'll never forget going into my audition. <laughs> oh, boy. For the, to, before I was accepted into the music program, right, I flew right, out there, right. met Fred Wickstrom. He was the tempanist with the Miami Symphony, and he was the head of the percussion department. He had this little uh, studio. F for me, I almost call it a hut. I mean, the, the whole Florida environment, atmosphere, the temperature, the whole southern muggy thing was a new thing to me. So I felt like I was in the jungle. Oh, sure, sure. So I go into this hot studio. Everyone's got their shirts half open and flip-flops. It was a very new... And I, I performed my audition. I played a, you know, a snare drum piece, a timpani piece, and a marimba piece. And Fred Wickstrom says, that's great, man. Uh, you know, I, I can see we have a place here at the school for you, and we'll be able to offer you some scholarship. But, uh, but I've got to ask you, what is your purpose for going after a degree in percussion? And I must have looked at him pretty stupidly and said nothing. And he said, well, well My drums rock. <laughs> <laughs> he said, let me show you what I've found a percussion degree is most useful for, Ben. And he goes over to the wall and he plucks off his own percussion degree, yeah, yeah. a little flappy piece of paper, and he goes down to the bass drum on a, on a drum set. And he says, I found that they work as excellent bass drum Muffles. <laughs> he was like, basically like, Ben, I don't think you really, you know, you should really ask yourself why you would want to go for a degree in percussion. Right, right. Um, so I wisely switched to a degree in drum set. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so after a year at Miami, racking up some dough, I mean, I had scholarship, work study, and some student loans. I moved back to Denver, dropped, you know, to, to pay less to go to school in state, went to UCD. I'm studying... You know, Chinese, Greek UCD mythology. UCD being University of Colorado uh -huh. in Denver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, at this point, I thought, well, I want to study Chinese so I can learn how to translate the Tao Te King, the I Ching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'm taking a semester, and uh, I'm take, I'm take, I want to be a short story writer at this point. So I'm taking English literature, Greek literature, Chinese. Um, semester into Chinese, I I share my dream with the instructor. I tell her, you know, this is why I'm studying Chinese. She says, Ben, Ben, 
you're you'll never be able to translate Te Ching because that was written in, in the ancient Chinese. That's not what you're learning. Here. Right, right, right. <laughs> so like, okay, screw this. So I, I dropped out of Chinese. I started to get really disenfranchised with school. All I was doing was practicing drums in the up on the music floor. And, sure. and, our, and one day I get a call from my friend, Jeff, and he says, Ben, get down to El Chapultepec. Max Roach's piano player is the house pianist here, and um, there's a drum set. Come on down and sit in. So Jeff and I That's started good. sitting in with Billy Wallace. Billy Wallace was a piano player with Max Roach okay. back in the 50s. Play, he played with Sonny Rollins, Max Roach, Von Freeman, all these guys. Um, and after a couple of weeks of sitting in with Billy, Billy... You know, the first thing was he said, well, come on back, fellas, next week. And we right. were like, wow, that's cool. Right, right. Really? You're good enough for it to be invited back. Yeah. Yeah, he liked, he liked what you did. And a couple months later, he starts slipping us 20 bucks each for playing, right. you know, the happy hours with him. I can't remember if that was about two hours, two and a half hours of music. And that was it. I dropped out of school to start pursuing full-time uh, drumming. Okay. I had a job as a waiter slash sound man slash doorman at the jazz works and the jazz works was a club beneath the wine coop brewery that was partly owned by former governor hickenlooper right at the time he was just a, a brewmaster right right well and that's also where i met mike fitz okay of gamelan of the gamelan yeah <laughs> <laughs> of the podcast <laughs> oh is he yeah he's on there yeah oh yeah, right yeah, on yeah, hey yeah. mike how you doing back there in archive land <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So, so that whole period uh, between sitting in at the Peck, as we call it, and sitting in on Tuesday nights at the Jazz Works, a local drummer here ran a uh, jam session. Okay. And the woman that hired me at the Jazz Works allowed me to sit in on the clock, you know, to take 10 minutes out and sit in and play a tune on the jam session. And that's where Mike Marlier, the local drummer who was running the session, uh, liked my playing and started giving my number out to local musicians. So that's how I launched off into playing drums here locally. Pretty soon after that, a buddy of mine in New York called me to sub on a New York Broadway show tour. And uh, I did it and got the gig. And so then I started touring these bus Broadway bus shows. They're, they're basically the B tour. Right. Where they take the Broadway show to different cities. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we're... It's a pretty unglamorous, it happened to be a pretty high-paying gig, you know, but we're oftentimes sleeping on a bus between cities. Sure. I mean, we get to a city and have a hotel to stay in, but, you know, oftentimes we're up at 6 in the morning to drive 500 miles to the next, you know. Right. It's that kind of life. But that was great. That was exciting in your 20s, you know. And, uh, and then I got gigs on cruise ships, playing in the big bands, backing up. Oh, on the cruise ship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Waking up on a different Caribbean island every morning of the week. Yeah. How long did you do cruise ship life? Uh, just about a year. Okay. Yeah, then I almost lost my mind doing that. And, and I, had a, uh, I was dating a woman who was to become my first wife at the time. So that was pretty hard to be away from her. All right, right. And, and uh, yeah. it can be brutal. It depends how you're hardwired. But there were people who were very smart about it and just socked away their money. Yeah. You know, and they had a plan, and they knew when to hit, you know, when to pull the pin. The older people I saw who did turn it into a career career were extremely alcoholic and bitter. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, as I think many people are when they're in the same job for twenty years or whatever. Like, Absolutely, doesn't matter where you are. Well, it's funny. You're right. I know a great trumpet player who spent a career in the military, which is a great gig from the standpoint of um, stability, sure, insurance, pay. But he became a miserable, unhappy drunk. You know, yeah. who doesn't want to touch his instrument anymore now that he's retired? Right. Right. But, um, so so anyway. tell me about photography. So you, so you okay. drummed for a while, and you so, were well, working and I, in your twenties as a drummer. Yeah, and I still, I mean, I still do. Sure, um, I'm st- I've been drumming my whole life. Uh, probably about okay. So I got off the cruise ship. I came back to Denver. It's pre cell phone days, or just right around cell phone days. So I I'd, I'd lost all contact with my with my local employers here in Denver. I get back. I start playing in the street. I'm busking. Oh really? Yeah. I start with my buddy Tom Ball, who now has a, a doctor's a doctorate in trombone. At the time, he brought conch shells, and I had congas, and we played on the street corner across from Coors Field. Nice. Right when the baseball stadium opened. Yeah, yeah. Or we were we started doing this in 90, 97, 98. Soon he blew his chops out. It was too difficult to be playing conch shells for eight hours in a stretch on your chops. I switched to drum set, and I went out and did solo drums for. Um, a couple seasons of baseball and made um, made the same if not more money than I would have playing in clubs really huh but it got to be pretty brutal uh you know I remember one day when a white guy came up to me and just shamed me for begging for money on a street corner he just you should be ashamed of yourself a white man begging on the streets oh of America gosh. for money I mean he yelled at me yeah this angry tirade and and it got to me it got under my skin man it really messed with me things like that you got to balance you know the, the you know the week before some beautiful women came up and just took their shirts off for me and they that's how much they enjoyed my drumming and I, <laughs> well that had me coming back but i blew my chops out one day i just i just was overplaying i really blew my chops out in my in my right hand and then almost on the heels of that this guy comes up and lays his anti-white begging tirade thing on me. Yeah. So, And coincidentally enough, the next day a guy drives by, a saxophone player in town, sees me playing on the corner. Ben, Ben, we need you on a gig. My drummer didn't show up. Boom, I'm back to playing at El Chapultepec. Okay. Okay, well, fast forward a few years, and I get on tour with a show called A Brief History of White Music. Okay. Local guy Rick Sieber <laughs> wrote this show, and it's yeah. The brief history of white music is a show cast for four African American singers singing the hits made popular by white musicians in the '60s and '70s. Right, sort of like well, there's many layers to the show, but you know w- what what would happen to this music if it was kind of soulified and right, right. By design or not, I became kind of the token white guy in the whole show. There was it was four people on stage and a and a three piece band, and everyone was African American except me on the drums. So we went on tour, and that's when I got my first camcorder, an old mini DV okay. uh, video camera. Now up to that point, I'd been taking pictures, very, very amateur hobby. I took a semester of photography when I was in college, sure. black and white, you know, developing the lab, all that really got very intrigued into the minutia of of cities in in in, in dilapidated run down um detritus filled refuse you know broken glass here um broken this abandoned that 
Yeah, yeah. Something about that stuff attracted to me. Uh, so I have a lot of old pictures of the Union Station, actually, before it was revamped. Wow, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that happened. Got on this tour, brought my camera, and I was sticking my, my camcorder in everyone's face <laughs> behind the scenes. You know? Right, sure. Ben, shut that thing off. I was in the dressing rooms. Would you like to talk to me about... Get that thing out of my face. Actually, I had a lot of great interviews, but as a result, I've got about 30 hours of mini DVs sitting in a box, unedited. Sure, you know? sure. But that's where I started started to really find that I was fascinated by other people and their stories. You asked about an inspiration. Cinematically, uh, Sergio Leone, the, the Spaghetti Westerns, mm -hmm. really influenced me in the sense of the power of wordless shots with music and close-ups. Okay. You know, he used a lot of close-ups of, of the human face, like amazingly close-up. Right? We can count the pores on the skin. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The drops the hair, of sweat. The, <laughs> yeah. The hairs in Clint Eastwood's beard. Yeah. 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 So that had an effect on me. And as I went home and started to edit some of this video, I started to ask myself, how close could I get to people? How, you know, how close can I get my camera to people? And really, I'm just fascinated with people, um, with the stories, uh, with their life and um, with their expressions. I, I, I see the beauty in everyone. Sure. And that's really what, that has come full circle into this jazz documentary I'm making is that um, I enjoy finding the best in people and bringing it out. It's, now this is completely unprompted. I want everybody to know, I'm talking <laughs> to the mic. As a photographer, I've said this for years and it's in my podcast interview. And this is completely unprompted for you to say that, which I think is so interesting, is that I have always said, like, a photographer's job is to find the beauty in everything. And as a fashion photographer, because I worked in fashion photography for years, my, my role as a fashion photographer is to find that beauty within the people that I'm shooting, because we're all, there's beauty in all of us, you know, and it's a job of the photographer to pull that out so that it can be seen on film or on print or wherever it's... You know. Absolutely, that's fascinating. Which is funny because you said the exact same thing just now. So, I guess I'm not <laughs> you, alone. You're in that. my long lost brother. I knew, yeah, I knew. It, right? I think we're very similar here. Yeah, I mean, there's a place I get, and I understand there are people who, who are interested in the underbelly, of um, well, well, even like I was saying, I'm fascinated by, by, by trash, by disuse, by abandonment, by sure. you know, um, commerce city areas of town that. Broken fences and 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 discarded kind of parts, abandonment. Yeah. But I find there's beauty in that. And even if I'm going to shoot something like that, I want to find the beautiful light and shadows and textures. Right. You know, there is a way to go shoot ugly, and dirt and ugly. And but that makes it beautiful too. You know what I mean? Like you're looking for the beauty in that dirt and in that crud and in that abandonment. Well, and and yes, and then there there is also very important journalistic photography that I haven't done you know like war photography sure, sure. that's stuff that that's disturbing and but we need to it has an important place right you know i agree but i but, guess that's not beautiful but i'm not interested in right now uh, <laughs> but you know in that shooting fashion i especially living here or living in denver i would take models and we'd go to the, exactly what you're talking about we'd go to the dilapidated rundown area and i'd put this high fashion model with you know some couture dress but the backdrop is like a burned out building. Right. I love that juxtaposition. It's just like the the grime with the beauty kind of thing. It, you know, and, and even, and hats off for you, 
doing that with high fashion because that's what, whenever we look our best, we're just a minute away from being undressed in the bathroom, getting very dirty and ugly, you know, right, so right. to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Or going home and having a screaming fit at somebody for something and right. looking our worst. We, we as human beings carry that juxtaposition all the time. Agreed. Yeah, you're totally um, right. We, we really try to put our best foot forward, but we were, we were both concurring on our sort of our mission statement. We're, <laughs> we're both intrigued by bringing beauty out. Sure. And, and as, a, as a music producer, I do that as well with sound and okay. audio. Regardless, if you're, if you're a screaming tirade, punk rocker or something, I want to get the most beautiful and best audio um, signal, if that, if that parallel sure. makes sense. So yeah, beauty and everything. Let's translate that beauty, uh, well, f- photography. So when did you start working professionally as a photographer? Okay, uh, and I do want to get back to the beauty thing. I'll bring it back around. Uh, professionally as a photographer... Um, do you remember I, what it was that sparked? Yeah, you it go, was. Wow, uh, I can make it was it. really just. Um, it was uh, senior headshots for a, for a family friend. Okay. Um, a family acquaintance that hired me to start to do senior portraits for her daughter, and then she hired me to come back and do family portraits, and so that gave me something. Even though I'd been shooting film at that time, and actually already had a couple minor professional film outings mm-hmm. behind the camera. As a photographer, this was one of the first, and that led, and that just kind of spun off into other things. So even at that time, I was still working as a full-time drummer, performing and teaching music. Were you you encouraged by your family, by your parents, to pursue music or to pursue the arts? My father, yeah. I remember distinctly standing in his kitchen one afternoon and saying, Dad, you know, I, I was a year into college, and I, I, I really wanted, I had dreams of becoming a lawyer or an astrophysicist as well, and I told him that. You know, my dad had gone through law, and he was a political science professor, and, okay. and I really admired a lot of the, the thinking and the reading that goes into, into that, and I was also uh, in love with space, you know. And I said, Dad, I just don't know, and, and my dad said, you know, Ben, You've been pursuing music. You've been doing music your whole life. You're good at it, you know. Why don't you pursue that to its natural end? You know, follow that path. If it doesn't pan out, you'll never regret having quit before you got the answer. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, he said that. He said, Ben, school is always there. You can always go to school and become anything you want. But you're on this path now. Why don't you give it a shot? Yeah, yeah. I think that's really powerful, especially for like parents, because so often I hear stories of people whose parents push them in the direction that the parents thought they should go in. Absolutely. I mean, that is the stereotype that we hear oh, all the time. I hear that all the time from a lot of my students. Yeah. And, and to have a parent that said, you're going down this path, why don't you continue down that path and see where it leads? I think that's super powerful. And I wish more parents would do that. So anybody listening to this, <laughs> we were talking about pursuing the arts and being an artist and being a full-time artist and and I'm just I want you to talk more about that and how that came to be and sure yeah well as I say I think getting the go-ahead from my father was was pretty powerful I, I really admired my father on many levels and looked up to him and and loved him so to get a green light from that or you know to get to hear him verbalize his belief in my talent so clearly was, I think, was pretty, was pretty powerful. That combined with 
<clears throat> by the time I graduated high school, and, and I was a fairly decent high school student. I mean, I wasn't a troublemaker. I got really good grades, mm -hmm. and, and I enjoyed certain academic um, aspects of it. Like I said, I loved reading and writing. But by the time I got out of high school, I knew that I never wanted to be inside a cubicle. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, the cube life. The artificial environment with the fluorescent lights, I was really depressed by the whole caged, fluorescent lit, artificial environment thing. Right. Couldn't stand right, it. Right. I didn't want to ever go back. Uh, that's just one thing I knew. The, okay, so here's about pursuing art. And when you're young and idealistic... It's a beautiful thing. And we talked about this being on the cruise ship. There does come a point where uh, you transition into an adult that's most likely going to desire some more stability than the arts are able to provide. Okay. Okay. When you get to that point, uh, so my big thing is ideally you've had this conversation with either your parents or some well-informed adults before you go down that path so that you know the likelihood of where that path is going to take you. Idealistic adults often encourage you to go that route because they know from personal experience to wake up as a 50-year-old man or woman who never pursued their dream can be miserable. And certain doors do close. Sure. Whether because you're tied down to a family, whether you're tied down to payments, you know, you can't, it's harder for a 50-year-old adult just to jump off the deep end and go back to pursuing art 24 right. seven. Right, right, for sure. Well, it's the responsibilities that you take on as an adult. And I think you mentioned it in one word, payments, <laughs> money, that we, that we create a life of ourselves in here in America, at least of debt of like, Absolutely. we have a house payment, we have a car payment, we have school payments for kids when they get to college or whatever. And you know, other things that we pay for. And we get addicted to the toys and addicted so that that I heard this quote, and I'm going to butcher it completely, but it's like we rise, our standard of living rises to our income level. That's right. That's A lot of people in America don't know how to save. They don't right. know how to invest. They don't know how to get ahead. We spend what we make. Right. And so at the age of 50, you're like, wow, if I quit and I go join a circus or I join the theater or I become a musician, you're going to go back to an income of zero versus an income of whatever you've built to, six figures or whatever. Right. That you're not willing to do because you can't afford to because you'll lose the car, the house, everything else because you won't be able to make those payments. And that sucks. Well, and here's one of the catch-22s, and this is where I think some adults are coming from when they encourage you to pursue your dream, is that if, if a well-off adult spends what they make and an artist, a starving artist, spends what they make, the end result is the same. You've just got fewer toys and security. The artist spends what they make Right. And they end up, you know, in their tattered jeans in a one-bedroom apartment with no car that works, no health insurance, and nothing in their savings. The adult spends what they make, but they're stressed out because even though they do have everything, the car, the home, the insurance, if they don't bust a 40-hour week, all that shit's getting repossessed. Right, or it's all going away. So they're in this stress. They're stressed maintaining a lifestyle that doesn't bring them the fulfillment that an artistic life does. Right. No, yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> so there's it's a so... huge catch-22 there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What it is, is the artist, the person who wants to pursue a life in the arts must have some financial literacy and habits under their belt. So when I was on the cruise ship being paid cash every week, 
I was an idiot. I didn't know how to put that right. into right. either an investment, uh, into a portfolio, how to save it, how to put it towards a down payment on a home. I spent it. I went right. gambling. I went drinking. I bought presents for my friends. I bought cool little gadgets on islands halfway around the world. Watches, switchblades, yeah. whatever, fancied yeah. my, knowing that next week I'd get the same money, it would all come back to me. Right. So it was a bad mental habit. I didn't know how to be financially wise and literate. It's not taught anywhere. It's not taught. And it almost doesn't matter how much money you're going to make. If you're a starving artist, you're still making something. If you know how to manage that money smart, it's the same as if you're a, a, a doctor or a lawyer those guys suffer if you don't know how to manage your money look at the nba and the nfl yeah. these young stars who are getting millions and then they end up destitute because they've blown it all right right that's true so regardless of what path you take you've got to get some business chops and financial literacy and then at least you'll be a step ahead of destitute and miserable yeah yeah for sure for sure <laughs> so it, it is a learning how to become responsible how to become fiscally like I need to put a certain amount of money away, right? 10% of my income or whatever it is to not touch, to allow that money to grow. And we call it, in my kind of circle, we call it the golden goose of like, I'm never going to touch this golden goose because it will eventually, when it is fully matured, will lay me golden eggs and I will live off those golden eggs for the rest of my life. And that's one thing that's not taught to artists, but it's also not taught to anybody. You right. know what I mean? Like that's not something they teach in school to people. Right, it's not. And, and to make that easier to, to accomplish, putting that money away, I was married to a, a woman, very wise. My second wife is a dentist. Okay. She just had that money taken right off her salary before it even went into her account. Before she even saw it. Before, and that's almost the only way to overcome the, the, the inclination. Spending imperative. <laughs> yes. You never see it. It's never yours yeah. to spend. It goes right into those accounts. Then you take what's left over and you've got to learn to budget and manage that as well. Right. And, and what a lot of people need to do, more than just having these theories, taking X percent every month and stocking it away for the golden goose, as you say, is actually visualize what your day-to-day -day life is going to look like living more frugal and saving. You don't go to Starbucks. You, make your, you take your own lunch to work, you know. You don't, when you go out to eat, you don't go to the cool, sit-down, overpriced, smoked salmon salad place and over-tip, you know, right, and over-eat. Right. right. You know, these are all things that add up, and yet in the moment, your friends are doing it. It seems normal, and you know that you're going to make that money back tomorrow at your job. Yeah. So what the hell? So why not? Right. That's where, that's the trap. It took, it took most of my <laughs> adult life up until this point to, real, to learn that. And we actually, my wife and I use this jar system where we have... We've gotten ourselves, we can live off 50% of our income for, for life, like for paying all the bills oh, and everything. Wow, that's great. And then the other 50% is broken up 10% into savings, 10% into a long-term savings for wow, big purchases. That's incredible. 10% is play, what we call play money, which uh -huh. if you go out yeah. and you have the play money, then you can go out and you get the nice have fun. restaurant or you yeah. can go out to the nice show or whatever. Treat yourself out. But if you don't have it, don't spend the other money because now you're just eating right. into the other... Make, learn want. to make fun other ways. It's becoming, it's becoming that fiscally, like how do I balance my money so that it can be used to its fullest extent versus, oh, let's go out and have a great dinner tonight because I'll get paid again tomorrow. Because that's not guaranteed. Right. And one day you won't get paid tomorrow. You know, One day your boss is going to let you go or you're going to hate your job so much you quit or oh, man. you're going to be injured or something's going to happen. Right. And then you're going to be like, shit, I'm out of luck. As a drummer, I would oftentimes get calls and I'd book my calendar a month in advance. I'd see that I had 30 gigs coming up. 
and I'd start spending that money I knew I would have back by the end of the month. Well, the music industry is just like, you know, gigs cancel, you get double booked, yeah. clubs close. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God! I screwed yeah. myself so often. <laughs> <laughs> so this has now become a uh, an, an economics podcast where we talk about being fiscally responsible. Yeah, I think it's important though, especially for artists. Because, especially because artists are one of the last people that are ever taught sort of any kind of financial responsibility. I well, think. you're absolutely right, Jim. And not only that, they almost pride themselves. I know I did. I did this. It's horrible. It's almost embarrassing to admit, but at a certain idealistic age in an artist's life you almost hate money you almost despise the thought of wanting it yeah you almost demonize you know as an artist you're an artist right and we do art for art's sake and fuck everyone else everything else is false and and it's a contrivance right and it's greed right well you know what that that's just going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, if, if you live in a, in a society where an artist is supported, you know, if you're in a village where the artist gets a scrap of meat off of the, off of the daily kill for being an artist, great. You can have that. You can have that mental attitude. Everyone in the tribe needs you to be 100% focused on art. That just doesn't exist in, in, in Western society right, anymore. Right. So that mental attitude is pretty destructive. So once you get over that, most and most artists are very uncomfortable self-promoting themselves, and most artists are very uncomfortable saying, "I want to become wealthy." Yeah, you know that's an uncomfortable statement to even formulate, and in fact, it may go against a very deeply held philosophy right. that what I should do, what I do, should take care of itself. The art will take care of me, and if I start thinking about money, I'm a sellout. I'm a corporate, you know fill in the blank right you hear that all the time of i remember growing up i guess two really good examples are michael jackson and uh van halen you know michael jackson was a pop star and then he and then he did a pepsi commercial you know remember where he set his hair on fire <laughs> yeah so he was a sellout for selling his work to pepsi but he made millions off of it like it's I li- and he lived a lifestyle where he needed to make millions oh, of dollars. I don't you know even I mean? believe there, there is such a thing as a and Van, Van Halen did the same thing where they licensed their music. I think it was for Coke or something or whatever, but they licensed one of their songs. And then they got the same flack from like the rock and roll community of like, oh, right. you're selling out because right. now you're selling out yeah, your corporate sellout. And I think that's 100% bullshit. It is because what people like that do, ostensibly what doing that does is enable you to, to then pursue art without any restrictions. Right, then you've exactly. got the power, the resources, the time and the money to go pursue anything you want. Whereas the irony is when they're when those bands were making records for the labels, they were slaves to the producers yeah, and the absolutely. they absolutely. the audience is duped. That's when they were being sellouts because they they had to get the record label the money back yep. that the label fronted them to make that cool record. Right. So right. then yeah, an artist can't be a sellout. I mean, you can you can turn your back on the art. Maybe that's a sellout. But if you do something to give yourself more resource and, and power to do what you want to do, that's being smart. I agree. And in today's day and age with the Internet, it's your, the more people that see your art, regardless of how they see it, the more well-known you're going to become. Like, the more people will want your art. And so... That's what you, you know, want. If you're a visual artist and you put your art on a T-shirt or a coffee mug or a magnet or a pair of shoes or whatever, like, who cares that your art is now 
on something else because more and more people see that and people are going to see, wow, where'd you get those really cool shoes? That's such cool art. Oh, it's this artist, blah, blah, blah. Now all of a sudden you've got a new fan that you would never have met because you That's put right. your art on something that it wasn't really originally meant to be on. And there is that, what you talked about, of like that true artist, like my art is meant to be here. It's meant to be on the wall. It's music. It's meant to be heard in the context of this song or like back in the album days. It's meant to be heard across the whole album. It's not just a single, you know what I mean? And it's like, we don't live in those times anymore. Well, and the irony is if an artist insists that their art be consumed or viewed in a certain way, they are at, that's an actually anti-artistic mindset. That's an authoritarian, that's a, that's a, I'm going to tell you how you must absorb my art. Right, right. That's authoritarian, that's a, it's the anti-artist. <laughs> yeah, it's totally. It's kind of, it's a great I- totally. irony. Yeah, yeah. People should be, you make something and let someone, let someone, you know, tear it up and burn it and, you know, rip it up, shred it, or listen to it when they fall asleep. However, yeah. that's, that's setting your, if art is your child or the bird from the nest, that's setting it free. I agree. I agree. And uh, I think the onus is on the artist, you know, if, I think artists fear that they can't wield the power of success. They're, they're afraid that if a million people start watching their art, they're afraid that's going to force them to become a sellout and start making cheesy shit that's not their vision. Instead of, if three million people are tuned into your page, that should just inspire you to go deeper. Right. Go make, deeper, make man. Make the art that you want to make, because obviously three million people like what you're doing They right dig now. what you're on, dude. Yeah. Now yeah, take sure. them on a journey, man. Now jump off the deep end and go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, why, do you, why do you think art is important? Why should we care about art? Well, on so many levels, but, but basically it inspires people. It lifts people up. And I mean that even if you're crying your, your eyes out on a depressing song, you have been given permission. You have been shown a catharsis. You have been given an outlet for something that we know psychically and mentally, physically, we need to release. So art allows you to release things that you need to be letting go of, and it also inspires you. People come up and they watch bands or they see a piece of art and they say, holy crap, I sh- I'm going to go home and do something better with my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to kiss my wife. I'm, I'm going to play with my kids. I'm going to build something for my family. I'm gonna- I mean, it's amazing. I have people come up to me when I play drums and it's political and it's spiritual. They'll see, they'll, some people get a political message. They see me being free. They see me wearing a suit in a formal setting going apeshit wild. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in an appropriate manner that right. serves the music. And right. they're like, dude, that's the shit. You know, we should all be, do- I should go into my architecture's job in my suit with my pens at my table and make some wild ass shit. You know, um, some people, some people get, some people are motivated. They go like, you know what? I don't have the energy you have on stage at any point in my day. I need to go home and find out what it is that makes me access that energy again because I know I had it. I want to be happy like that at some point in my day. Okay, so the, so my follow-up question then is one that I ask a lot of people is, is ties right in with what you're just saying, is what advice would you give to someone who is starting out as an artist, whether they're a drummer, photographer, visual artist, whatever? Well, one thing is to learn to become your own greatest teacher 
and your own greatest fan. Okay. What do you mean by that? That's kind of self-sufficiency. Well, well, I say that because you're going to get feedback from a bazillion people, and we don't know how to how to prioritize that feedback. Who's telling me what I need to hear? Who's right? Who's wrong? You know, someone tells me I just made a piece of crap. You need to fix that. Well, how do I? Is that are they right? Is it wrong? Are they so? You've got to learn to become your own best teacher. And what I mean is every artist is inspired by things they hear, see, smell, breathe, taste, feel. Yeah. Learn to trust those, those qualities. Learn, and how do you learn to trust your vision? Well, study what it is you see and what it is you like and what, what gives you these emotional highs. Study it. Break it down. If you watch a movie, if you see, if you go into an art museum and you're a painter, and you look at a hundred paintings and two of them rock your world. Take pictures of those. Go home and study them and find out what it, and copy them. And figure out what it is you like about them and what yes. you about them. Yeah, yeah. And what makes them work for you? What makes them spark something inside of you? And that's what you want to start bringing to your art. So if someone gives you feedback that's contrary to that, you know that you can disregard that information. Right. You know, if you've made something that you see visually stimulates you the same way, you know, that Van Gogh did, and then someone tells you that your piece that your art is a piece of shit, you can say, okay. That guy has a val- that guy just doesn't dig my style, but I know that my style is working. Right. You've right. got to be your own teacher. If you make something a piece of music that doesn't move you the way John Coltrane moves you, then maybe you haven't internalized the elements mm. yet. Mm-hmm. So, you, sense, yeah. so you've got to learn to like dissect the world and understand what the forces that move and inspire you, the people that you think are great. Break it down and figure out what it is they're doing and then internalize it. Try to copy it until it comes out in your own flavor. Right. Then the people you meet on your journey who are aligned with that, those are people you want to listen to. Interesting. The people okay. who yeah. know how Coltrane did this. The people who know how Van Gogh got that shading. And they'll have an educated opinion versus just some Joe Blow off the street. They'll have technique and an educated opinion. Exactly. What do you think holds people back from pursuing their art self-doubt yeah um insecurities um and insecurity not just with themselves as a person but that goes back to financial so again advice to an artist would be learn as much as you can about business and financial literacy don't fear the habits of millionaires it's it's not a disgusting dirty vicious thing if you conduct yourself with a set of morals that are informed by your art, you will not become a destructive millionaire. You won't become one of these crass people who plows over land and fracks the hell out of it and doesn't care about the children down the block going to school. You won't become one of those people as long as you stay informed by your art. Right, right. But you shouldn't fear. In fact, you should prime yourself for success you need success in order to continue developing as an artist. Sure, absolutely. And 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 you need you need to be your own you need to be your own best friend, you need to be your own doctor and your own teacher and your own promoter. And you and you really do. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that you do. That's where I think DIY is I think it's very hard to be your own promoter. 
and still lead an artistic. If you can, if you get the financial thing working, hire someone to do yeah. that for oh, you. Oh, there you go. I really believe, get some help. Because you, you and I can spend all day trying to DIY the social media. And, and you have to promote. Your art has to be promoted. If no one else is doing it, yes, you will have to do it yourself. Right. And you should figure out how to do some basic stuff. But as soon as you can hire someone else, it's easier on your psych. It's easier and you free up more time. You can actually have a relationship with someone and do your art. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's a, I think that's a huge key there is... Um, surrounding yourself with a network yeah so you're a working artist then mm, quite and you drive your living through both music and videography primarily photography videography that's right which do you like more or do you have a favorite Ooh, well i've done i've done music i've been on the stage my whole life okay um the wages of a working musician have remained frozen for the last arguably 50 years. Wow. Okay. My whole, I, you know, I have not seen one raise in my life. I, when I started off drumming, I, literally, <laughs> this is funny. I haven't thought of this till now, but going back to when I was hired in high school, mm -hmm. I was hired, I was paid, I made a hundred dollars to, to drum for another high school's musical. Well, granted I put in, more hours on that probably with rehearsals and a number of performances but i still make a hundred i can go on stage and make a hundred dollars today mm -hmm. 40 uh 35 years later like playing in a club or a bar like playing or... in a club or a bar right so that sadly to say has it's taken the joy out of you know when you don't feel respected in other words i've spent 35 years watching bartenders make more money waiters make more money mm. everyone there's not one industry in the world whose wages have remained frozen. That's interesting. For 40 years. But musicians are going and making the same despite everything else in the world having gone up in price and everyone else's wages going high. That has a psychological toll that's very devastating. Sure. It's hard for me to, to derive any pleasure loading my car with my drums and driving an hour to a club to set up and make the same thing I did, you know what I mean? Right, right. So, so video, yeah, video is 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 one. I haven't been doing it as long, so there's more. Um, so I'm, there's more fresh enjoyment, the, sure. the newness of the love. Sure. But I can do it at home. For example, I just received in the mail yesterday a hard drive from a client. He PayPal'd me a deposit, without without barely opening my front door, opening my front door to reach down and grab this delivery i can go to my office plug in a hard drive a deposit has been zapped into my account electronically i can work from my home when it's finished i get the remaining deposit i've made a hell of a lot more money than i have drumming mm -hmm. i love it <laughs> <laughs> i mean i do love film and right and I, i'm also in, involved in a couple artistic film projects that are making no money right now right. i'm in the process of trying to write grants i'm trying to beg people for money it's still not a glamorous you know I'm still driving a 12-year-old car. I'm, you know, I don't have I don't have the things that a doctor would have or or an architect, but I'm I th I think I'm I'm working on it. I think I have a better chance of doing that and artistically being happy. Well, I was going to that was the question I was going to ask you. Yeah. Are you happy? Well, <laughs> well, yeah, here's here's the thing with as far as my drumming and music is concerned, I can go out to my garage. 
I can set up microphones and I can either call friends over and record some art, some music that I really enjoy. Right. Boom, I've got... First of all, that it happens for its own reason. We've spent an hour playing and we feel good. Boom, that's all it needs to mean. But I do have a recording. Now if I want to upload it and try to market it, blah, 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 I can do that. So musically, I can remain happy. If I'm not dependent on going every night into a club, then when I do, do go to a club, it's because I want to. The, right. the person who, the band who called me, I actually enjoy. I want to be there. Um, and I'm not doing it because I need the money. I was going to say, it becomes less about the money and more about the enjoyment of right. the art. Right. It, intersecting courses. Yeah, at some point, as a 20-year-old going into a 30-year-old, at some point, you stop going to the stage for the joy of it. And you go there because you need the pathetic money that's not changing. Right. And at that point, you start hating yourself. The musicians I know, in a self-protective mood to not self-hate themselves, flip it. They become bitter and hate the world, and they mm. become addicted to drugs and alcohol. And they can go home knowing that the problem's not within them. It's the fucked it's up the society. <laughs> right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, don't, I saw that coming, and I didn't want that for myself. So I've started a few businesses. I'm just started a new import business after our trip to Bali. Right. I'm going to try to put wings on that. The video thing has taken off. I'm shooting documentaries either for myself or for other people that I think will have potential to be picked up by either Netflix, PBS, or at least generate some grant money and get me further down the road as a director. Sure. And in the meantime, I actually really enjoy going back to photography and bring, bringing beauty out. I love editing other people's videos. Because it gives me a chance to beautify, if you will. I get off on the rhythmic flow of video when it comes together. Trimming the fat off and having yeah. scenes come together that just pull the listener on a fast train forward to the end. I get off on that. Right, right. Yeah. I came from, we talked about this before, uh, actually in Bali, I think, where me coming from Disney where we shot very high volume. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was in the days of film. And mm -hmm. I was the guy, I, was, I worked a lot of, uh, just like film loader, you know, and I had the extra camera with the same lens and the same exact setup. And when the guy ran out of film, he handed me the camera and I handed him the new camera and I took that roll out and put a new roll in and had it ready to hand him. And we just shot rolls upon rolls upon rolls. And I, I think I told you, I shot, we did 400 rolls of film for one corporate commercial shoot. That's amazing. Which, what is that, 400 times 36, 12,000 images? That's amazing. To be edited down to maybe half a dozen, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that it's that editing part of... Yeah. Uh, that's how I feel. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you got to do it. It's part of the, it's everything. Well, I, I mean, I hate to say it's it. It's like putting your drums in your car and going to the. Yeah. I mean, and even that to me is more fun. <laughs> There's a very physical element that I enjoy. Right, sure, sure. Uh, but, but I imagine that if the zeros got, if there were more zeros on the check, uh, wading through 12,000 images with a nice cup of coffee or your you're beverage probably, of your choice, you could really right. get off on that. Yeah, you're probably right. You know, because really, it, to me, when I'm working, I'm either, if I'm stressed about paying the next bill, I'm ripping through my edit to get to the next project. Right, right. If If everything's cool, you know, if my family's safe, the lights are on, and the bill, billing cycle is going to come around next month, so I'm not... Then I can sit down and really get in my artist's mindset. And if I have, sure. to, if I have to edit a, a, a picture, you know, a portrait, I'll just sit there and do it. Yeah. And it's like... But as soon as, as soon as I'm weighing, like, you know, 
why am I going through 500 pictures to pick one to sit and edit for three hours every little pixel? Is it worth it? Right, right. Because in the case of pictures, I don't enjoy it. Video, I can get sucker punched. I'll do someone's project and make nothing <laughs> because I enjoy it so much. For sure, sure. So I'm trying to reel that impulse in. Right, find that balance <laughs> between the two. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Yeah. If you had 60 seconds with 20-year-old Ben, what advice would you give him? Oh, Jim. Wow, what a question. You've got to have some deep questions. Yeah. Boy, I'd probably sound like a father. And so the trick would be to take 60 seconds. What I would try to do is tell myself to trust in the process, to believe in yourself. Don't do drugs. <laughs> At least not too many. <laughs> and, well, by the time I was 20, I had done enough that I needed to do. Oh, okay. So, yeah. here, here, just going off really quick, the thing about drugs... Sure. There are some legitimate uh, psychedelic drugs that have lessons to teach some people some of the time. Absolutely. But the lesson is generally something you should get once. <laughs> okay. And what I mean by that is if, if, you're, if, if, a, if an experience with a psychoactive or you know, a psychedelic drug, for example, can show you something that you never knew existed, mm -hmm. another way of seeing things, another realm, then you should come back to your sober state carrying with you the knowledge that those places are now accessible to you mm -hmm. without the drug. Right, right. You have been given the keys and the permission. Well, it's interesting you say that. The previous podcast that I did was with um, Morgan Mandala and Randall Roberts, and they're two, they're two artists out of Boulder, and they're both, I don't think you'd classify them that way, but they're both like psychedelic artists. Uh -huh. And they don't, they don't do their art while they're, taking an experience, uh -huh. having a trip or anything. But like you just said, they have done that. They've unlocked something else that they then transpose into their art when they create their art. Right. And it's amazing. And their art is amazing. And, and we're all different. We, we all have different capacities. Some people have to go back twice to get the lesson. Well, I understand that. But basically, I tell the 20-year-old, don't, do you know, don't do drugs out of the sense that you need to fit in with... Uh, a culture okay you know just because yeah. the band is doing it or blah 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 and learn how to become financially literate yeah you know and then and then the rest is and then just follow your heart the way you're doing and and i'd say and i'd also say to any 20 year old cut yourself some slack you know we all fall off the path when you pull yourself back up don't beat yourself up more than the 10 seconds or whatever that it takes to learn the lesson. Right, right. You know, then get back to loving yourself and knowing that you're not any different than anybody else oh, around that's here. Good. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's good. So uh, you and I just finished a trip to Bali together. That's how I met you. That was Congratulations. a Congratulations. I'm, I'm glad I met you, Tim. Um, but I want to know, what, what are you working on today? What's, what's coming up in the future for, huh. for you and your artistry? Back from Bali. It's funny you say that, Jim. I've been opening myself up to more video work. I mean, I just, because I'm getting a lot of feedback, I love it. A thousand projects have fallen in my lap. Of course, I'm finishing up the master edits on the performances you guys did, okay. Tunis Makar. Sure. Yeah. And it will be, I'll be proceeding with all of the dance numbers. We're kind of prioritizing. So sure. We, so we can upload uh, links to the mastered versions of some of the clips that are out there. Okay. Uh, while I was in Bali, it struck me that 
uh, we could use Tunis Makar and just the knowledge that we have coming back from Bali to raise money to fix that Taksu temple. Mm. So and I'm going to take footage from what I shot in Bali and try to put together uh, a compelling and informative short video to generate funds to try to raise money to help fix that temple in right. Bali. So you're talking about the Taksu temple, which yeah. was uh, a temple in Banga, which was the village that our Guru Pakmati lives in that was destroyed in the earthquake last year. Damn, uh, I wish I could have said it like that. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so the, the town and the greater community have been raising money to rebuild that temple. That's right, Jim. And, so, and they're about 30 grand short. Okay. Uh, it's a very important temple in their village, in their community. And yeah. Uh, I think it's amazing that they raise that much money among themselves. Oh, absolutely. The Balinese are fairly poor. You know, there's yeah. a lot of poverty there, but yet they've been able to self-raise um, X amount. So that's one project. I've stumbled across um, Erica Brown, a local blues singer. Mm -hmm. She has a great story. She's asked me to film a documentary as she uh, records a CD to honor one of her mentors, Big Mama Thornton who is a very important blues singer in early American music. Okay. Um, and there's a twist to that story. She has researched this woman's life and has found a slight injustice that has been done. She's found a way to fix it. And so I'm going to follow Erica Brown on her journey. Oh, cool. Yeah, this is very interesting stuff. Then I'm completing work on my own jazz documentary called Jazz Town. Jazz Town is a film that honors my early jazz mentors here in Denver. And um, also explores the question, what is jazz? Right. You know, I've got cool. I've got a five Grammy, five time Grammy winning Diane Reeves in there. Governor Hickenlooper mm -hmm. is in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, Ron Miles, another great local figure who's yeah. got some international credits under his belt. That's this is, cool. Yeah. So these are some projects you're working on, and that's right. Got on the plate. Hot they're, on the plate. They're hot on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way? Oh. Uh, ben Mackinen at Mac.com in my email. Okay. So it's B-E-N-M-A-K-I-N-E-N at M-A-C.com. I also happen to be customizing men's uh, dress jackets. Uh, I uh, spray paint them in an urban camouflage style. Oh, interesting. I'll show you. Yeah. yeah. And I make percussion instruments. I've been making chimes out of keys for people. Whoa. Custom -made. All kinds of art we could get into. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So artists through and through. So people can find me at my website, benmackinen.com. Okay. And then they can contact me directly, benmackinen at mac.com. And I'm um, guessing you're on the socials, Facebook. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. Instagram. I've got Twitter, an Instagram, ben.mackinen, whatever, at blah, blah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, so if we Google you, and I haven't done this prior, which I apologize for, but, but if we Google you, I'm sure that yeah. you'll come up. Your name is not that common. It's not like John Smith or anything. It's the, the only other common guy right now next to me is Tommy Mackinen, who is a famous Finnish uh, race car, NASCAR guy. Oh, yeah? I think he's retired, but Tommy Mackinen comes up in a lot of Mackinen searches. But Ben Mackinen ought to bring you to me in the wild world of my film, cool. uh, photo, and music. Yeah, I've watched some of your film. It's It's... Interesting to say the least. I've got. Well, I like your the avant garde. You've sent me some avant garde I pieces, do, which yep. are pretty pretty wild, and I and I enjoy those. But uh. and that's what I mean. As an artist, I'm 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 doing photo shoots for people. I'm doing headshots. I'm doing legit straight documentary. But when I get when I've got my bills paid, I go out in my garage and I do my art, my deep art. Right. Does stuff the, that you really want. Abstract. To do. Right. Right. You mentioned. So, oh, I also have an instructional series on YouTube for jazz drumming for brushes. Really. And various techniques that 
bring in percussion with a drum set technique. I marry hand percussion with foot pedals and oh, that's interesting. drum set stuff. And yeah, that's on YouTube. I've got that on YouTube. It, that's an ongoing project that yeah. I. But that sounds cool. It's, yeah, it's that pretty fun too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, my hope is simply to inspire. If if some drummers out there stuck with their sticks on drum set patterns, boom, 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 boom how can you bring in a conga and a cowbell on your pedal and boom, pakachiko, goo, goo, pakaka, boom, boom, crack, boom, boom, crack, crack, boom, chakaka, boom, 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 crack, boom, right? Right. I just want to inspire people to pick up more shit around them that they think is beyond them or doesn't relate to them and realize that everything relates. A, a, a knife on a plate sitting next to your drum set or next to your guitar. Yeah. And you've got a whole other sound source. Right, absolutely. That's cool. So yeah. any last words for the Crave audience that you... Just go do it. Joe, go do it, man. Just go uh, do it. Yes. You know, if you're a dreamer, I'm a dreamer, and I tend to get stuck in my dreams, and my challenge has been to, to materialize. Oh, that's good. You know, get out of the journals, get out of your list making, pick one, and just go freaking do it. Yeah. Start with one, and don't, don't even care how it turns out, but do it to your best, launch it out there. Put it on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and then delete it from your files and move to number two. That's great. That's great advice. Well, Ben, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate sitting down and chat. We could turn this into several hours, I'm sure. So now I'm going to have to edit it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate you taking edit, the time. Edit, to sit edit, down. edit. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat. Thank you, Jim, so much for talking with me. All right. Thanks, brother. Yeah. As a special bonus for podcast listeners, Ben is offering a 25% discount on any portrait session for family or pet portraits. Just mention Crave Magazine Podcast when you book. Also, head on over to his website and sign up for his email list, and he will send you a beautiful digital print of one of his gorgeous flowers from his backyard garden. That's right, his gorgeous flowers from his backyard garden. Just head on over to benmackinen.com. The music for this episode is a Ben Mackinnon original entitled Beetle and Bug and Cupid's Arrow. You can find that track and all his music at, you guessed it, benmackinnon.com. Are you ready to go deeper into the arts? Then sign up for the Crave Magazine Podcast Patreon. Starting with episode 26, we are offering a deeper dive into the artist's conversation with extended bonus interviews. In addition, subscribers can get their hands on incredible limited edition prints as well as original artwork from some of the Crave artists. As you know, my mission is to bring art to the world, and as a Crave Magazine podcast patron, you will help make that happen. So please, head on over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash podcast. As always, be good to one another, and take time to feed your soul with art. <laughs>